We're speaking with Dr. Alfred Desayas, who is a professor of international law at the Geneva School of Diplomacy. Full disclosure, the Geneva School of Diplomacy is my alma mater, and Dr. Desayas was my professor. Um, he's also a retired senior lawyer from the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, former secretary of the Human Rights Committee. He was the first UN-appointed special reporter and independent expert on human rights. He went on a fact-finding mission to Venezuela and produced a report with uh, recommendations which assessed the situation there. And one more interesting fact, if I may add, he's also the great-grandnephew, I believe, of Alfredo de Zayas y Alfonso, Cuba's president from 1921 to 1925. We'll be discussing the ongoing U.S. regime change operation in Venezuela. Uh, bienvenido, Profesor de Zayas. Muchas gracias. Encantado de estar con usted. Well, Dr. Desaez, let's start um, with a little bit of background context on Venezuela and the crisis, because I think it's important for people to understand this issue, because there are different narratives going around. Um, it's reported that the humanitarian crisis uh, in Venezuela is entirely the fault of uh, Chavez and the Maduro government, uh, and this is being promoted as a pretext for intervention. Yet at the same time, we know that the United States uses all types of economic hybrid warfare against states. We've previously, I've previously interviewed John Perkins, the economic hitman, uh, who wrote a best-selling book about how we actually participated in this economic warfare. Uh, so you say that U.S. sanctions uh, are responsible for the humanitarian crisis. So could you tell us how much of Venezuela's problems are due to the government corruption and ineptitude uh, of the Maduro government and how much can be attributed to the U.S. interference? Can we fault both parties or does one party shoulder greater blame? Well, a country that depends 90 to 95 percent on the sale of oil, when in 2013-14 the price of oil falls dramatically, it is obvious that uh, they were hit badly by the fall of the price of oil. That could easily have been survived. Uh, if Venezuela had not been subject of uh, an economic war from the United States, but not only, had it not been uh, subject to an internal war from the opposition, because the opposition is highly undemocratic. Juan Guaido is highly undemocratic. These people want simply to go back to the good old days when the rich were rich and the poor were pure, poor. They uh, want to do away with the social legislation uh, of Chavez, etc. And uh, since most of the uh, enterprises uh, in um, Venezuela are still in the private sector, I mean, Venezuela is not a communist uh, government. Venezuela is not a government like the Soviet Union. Far from it. So. They have a very large uh, middle class and a very large private sector uh, that do not share the ideology of Chavez and uh, Maduro. True enough, Chavez was elected in 1998 by a landslide. Interestingly enough, a landslide against the uh, neoliberal policies of the uh, right-wing governments that Venezuela had always had, and against the um, IMF austerity measures and against the privatization of everything, so that, like so often in the world, 
all the money is very, very few hands. You might call it the 1% uh, of uh, uh, Venezuelan society. And then on top of that, you have, of course, the transnationals that were bleeding Venezuela to death because the, uh, uh, the profits uh, went mostly to the United States and were not available uh, for uh, social services and other services in Venezuela proper. So you have a situation that the budget has been halved. Uh, in a normal uh, uh, world situation, Venezuela would have been able to issue bonds, would have increased its sovereign debt. As a matter of fact, Venezuela had a very uh, little sovereign, de uh, sovereign debt if you compare it with its neighboring countries. And um, if you had allowed Venezuela to buy and sell like anybody else, uh, then there's so much wealth, natural wealth in Venezuela that they have more than enough uh, to feed their people, everybody, and to provide the best medical care available. Now, they got award after award, recognition after recognition in the 1999, in the 2000 years, when um, Chavez pulled Venezuela uh, out of abject poverty. I mean, there were so 9 million Venezuelans who were actually pulled out of abject poverty. Uh, and he did away with illiteracy. Uh, he made uh, free education from uh, primary school to uh, university available to all Venezuelans without discrimination. And uh, medical services and everything improved dramatically. Maternal mortality fell dramatically. Infant mortality fell dramatically. So you would have expected in 2013-14 that you would have had uh, international solidarity helping a country uh, that was having problems because of the dependence on the price of oil. Far from helping the country, Obama already and subsequently Trump uh, started tightening the screws on the economy. The, the whole strategy has been the same strategy used against Daniel Ortega in uh, Nicaragua, the same strategy that was used against um, uh, Salvador Allende in Chile uh, is to make the economy scream, as Nixon said when he called uh, Kissinger in 1970 after the election of Salvador Allende. He told Kissinger, we're not allowing an alternative socioeconomic model to take hold in Latin America. So the Chilean uh, economy is going to be made to scream. They tried to do the same thing uh, with Cuba. They tried to do the same thing with Nicaragua, and they're doing it uh, with um, Venezuela. Now, uh, certain sanctions could be uh, accepted. You know, not selling Maduro weapons. Uh, is, I've always been, especially in a situation of... Uh, uh, tension 
I think it's best not to sell weapons uh, to either side. But the uh, sanctions and the financial blockade and uh, the, the, the general situation of um, sabotage that obtains in Venezuela is what has caused the uh, crisis that the Venezuelan people are uh, living through. I'm very careful not to say humanitarian crisis because I know what it means, humanitarian crisis in Gaza, in Yemen, in Syria, in Libya, in Sudan, in Somalia, uh, in Mali, elsewhere. But uh, what you have in Venezuela is a deliberate attempt to strangle the country. Strangle the country by not allowing banks to transfer payments. I mean, it's happened as it is documented in my report to the Human Rights Council, as it's documented in the comments of uh, Venezuela on my uh, report, that Citibank, Commerzbank, Wells Fargo have uh, simply refused to make transferences for the purchase, for instance, of dialysis supplies, for the purchase of insulin, for the purchase of anti-malaria uh, medicine. So here you have actually premeditated, deliberate homicide. Those countries uh, that have applied sanctions, that have connived or been complicit in the uh, financial blockade of the country are the countries that are responsible for deaths uh, as a result of malnutrition, deaths as the result of uh, lack of medicines or what have you. I've already written in my report that to the extent that maternal mortality which had dropped so much, has now increased to the extent that infant mortality that had dropped has now increased to the extent uh, that you could probably quantify the number of deaths, certainly in the hundreds, if not in the thousands. Uh, this is deliberate. That entails not only civil liability, but also personal criminal liability. And this is a matter for the International Court of Justice, actually a matter for the International Criminal Court. The International Court of Justice should, in an advisory opinion, finally clarify uh, that sanctions uh, that have such horrendous impacts uh, in the enjoyment of human rights by populations, sanctions that are indiscriminate, sanctions uh, that essentially paralyze a country's economy are contrary to international law. Of course, they are contrary to Articles 1 and 2 of the UN Charter. Of course, they're contrary to the OAS Charter, in particular, Chapter 4, uh, Article 19. But it has to be said, the fact that I, the former rapporteur, says that, or the fact that the current rapporteur uh, on sanctions, uh, Yidris Yassairi, has said that repeatedly, uh, that doesn't have the weight that you would want it to have, meaning it has to be said by the International Court of Justice. But 
it's not just saying it. It must have consequences. It is inacceptable that the uh, prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has not initiated an investigation into the responsibility of the United States, of Canada, of the United Kingdom, of France, etc., for the consequences of these uh, sanctions imposed on the people uh, of Venezuela. Now, you asked me uh, if I were to separate between uh, the responsibility of Chavez Maduro and uh, of the um, uh, United States and its uh, allies, uh, I would say without hesitation that the uh, overwhelming responsibility is for the United States and uh, with uh, the, its allies. Now, why does uh, Maduro now, uh, that's the current narrative, uh, refuses aid? It's not that he refuses aid. As a matter of fact, repeatedly he has asked the United Nations to coordinate the aid. Repeatedly. Repeatedly he has uh, appealed, say, to the Global Fund for uh, easy access to antiretroviral drugs. Back in 2017, the Global Fund uh, told Maduro quite clearly, sorry, you don't qualify, you're too rich. So the thing is, of course, uh, Venezuela is enormously rich. It's not only the largest oil reserves in the world, but it also has huge gold reserves and bauxite and coltan. Allow that country to borrow against its own natural resources, allow that country to issue bonds and sell them freely without any interference from the United States, without uh, the blackmail and the pressures and the arm twisting and the uh, fear of very substantial penalties to the Department of the Treasury of the United States. If you do business with uh, Venezuela, you might find yourself that you get a penalty of $200,000, $300,000. Not everybody wants to take that risk. And that's why enterprise after enterprise have been dropping Venezuela because it's too much of a headache. Can, can you... Can you answer uh, one criticism? So I, I've shared your articles and interviews with, with friends in Latin America and, and other places, and some have responded to me saying that, uh, you know, the, the, and these friends work in, with NGOs and, and IGOs, and they say that UN experts such as yourself who go on fact-finding missions do not get a sense of what's really going on, that you're, they are presented with like a version that the government wants uh, you to see and not the real Venezuela but I mean, you've you said in you've uh, spoken to the opposition, you've spoken to dozens of NGOs, you were on the ground. How do you respond to this criticism that that people say that well, you know? Uh, certainly, uh, rapporteurs uh, are uh, subject to manipulation uh, by all sides. Uh, by governments, by non-governmental organizations, by uh, uh, the narrative that you read in the mainstream uh, media. Happily, I myself come from Latin America. I know the history of Latin America. I know the history of uh, Venezuela. And um, 
I speak the language. It's my mother tongue. So I went around incognito, walking the streets, going into the supermarkets and the black market to know what's going on. I spoke to people. No one had a clue who I was. Needless to say, I also spoke to about 12 ministers. I spoke with a foreign minister, but I got I got the views of as many stakeholders as I could interview. As I said, National Assembly members, Chamber of Commerce, Fede Cameras, and um, NGOs that are very critical of the government, uh, Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and Provea, one of the local ones. But I also saw... Uh, at least 16 uh, local Venezuelan non-governmental organizations uh, that do support the programs of the government and that do blame the United States, Canada, and the Europeans for the chaos that uh, they have been suffering. So uh, I'm no fool. I have read all of the material the reports of Zaid Rad El Hussein, the former High Commissioner, the reports of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, uh, the statements of Luis Almagro, the uh, Secretary General of the Organization of the American States, and so on. So I know what they accuse the government of, but I find their reports methodologically fundamentally flawed. Take the reports of the High Commissioner Zaid. No effort whatever uh, to reflect the point of view of the government. And by the way, the code of conduct of all rapporteurs in Article 6 obliges us uh, to check and double check sources and to take into account all credible sources, especially the explanations given by the government. I mean, we're trying to persuade the government that it is in its own interest uh, to change its policies. But for that, we also have to know what the position of the government is. And I made an effort to listen to all sides, and I do reflect both sides in my report. But the report of the High Commission for Human Rights is basically a political pamphlet. I think it's a disgrace. And I know it's a disgrace because, say, Funda Latin, the oldest NGO in uh, Venezuela, a homegrown NGO, is not Amnesty Finance uh, uh, from uh, London or is not Human Rights Watch financed uh, by Soros and financed by the Open Society Institute. It is not the established Western NGOs. I'm talking about really homegrown NGOs in Venezuela. Funda Latin, the Grupo Sures, the Red Nacional de Derechos Humanos, they came to Geneva in March and June uh, of 2017, long before I had even asked uh, to visit the country, long before I even thought that I was going to go to Venezuela. But in any event, uh, they came to the Human Rights Council, they came to the Office of the High Commissioner, they delivered an enormous documentation on the 
violence of the so-called guarimbas uh, of the opposition. I mean, you hear in the mainstream narrative that uh, the uh, demonstrations of the opposition are peaceful demonstrations. No, they were not. I mean, the level of violence, the Molotov cocktails, the uh, burning of seven human beings alive, because, I mean, if you were black, they would assume that you were a Chavista. If they caught you, uh, they would flame you to death. And there are seven proven cases of that uh, during the Guarimbas of 2017. Can, can now, you speak, uh, you, you mentioned the, the Western uh, NGOs, um, and can you speak a little bit about, well, two things, the, the propaganda uh, narrative that, that we have uh, in the West, um, you know, w there's Mike Pompeo who just said there are Hezbollah terror cells in Venezuela. That which is, is so ludicrous. I mean, joke. they use uh -huh. any, but any pretext, no matter how phony, no matter how contrived, in order to create a mood, it's um, uh, Hezbollah or, and this is the head of the U.S. Southern Command, uh, who said that they stand ready uh, to protect the lives of American diplomats in the U.S. Embassy in Caracas. Uh, at no point, but at no point has the government of Venezuela failed in providing protection to American diplomats. And no point has the government of Venezuela said anything could could be interpreted as a threat to the security of the American embassy. So to come out and say we're ready to defend the embassy, what the hell is that about? I mean, uh, it, it is Machiavellian. It is cynical. It is simply fake news, but of the worst kind. It is warmongering. You know that uh, propaganda for war is specifically prohibited in Article 20 of the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. You know that the threat of and the use of force is prohibited in Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the UN Charter. You know that it's prohibited in Resolution 2625. It's re prohibited in Resolution 3314. But the conglomerates, the... Um, Mainstream media uh, simply are the sounding boards for the State Department and the Pentagon. And uh, USAID, the DEA, the uh, Drug Enforcement Agency, and the so-called National Endowment uh, for Democracy, I mean, these are notorious Trojan horses. The, the, the history of the misuse of the humanitarian aid argument in order to justify a military intervention is not just now. I mean, it was done already under Reagan at the time of um, um, the, the contrast. You remember the I Iran contra Elliot uh, Abrams. Scandal. They, they, brought, they, brought, they brought Elliot Abrams back for the sequel. It does. I mean, the cynicism of the whole thing uh, really is breathtaking, but they're doing it and they're getting away with it. Because, uh, for instance, when I came back as the first UN rapporteur to have been on the ground, to have done really a thorough job 
because I had meetings back to back, back to back, back to back, and I was successful. I got 80 people out of jail. What other rapporteurs has had a success like that? I got new arrangements between the FAO and UNHCR and the government, etc. Because I, I was critical of the government. I was quite critical in their faces. I mean, I told them, you're a bunch of ideologues. What you need is technocrats, and you have to get more technocrats. You have to involve people like uh, Thomas Piketty. You have to involve uh, international economists to help you get your house in order. That I told quite clearly uh, to the Venezuelan authorities. Uh, but you would think that when I come back with success, that BBC, CNN, Fox, Deutsche Welle would have wanted to interview me. Never. It's been a year and two months since I carried out my um, uh, my mission. It's been now five months since my report came out and it's been in the internet. Uh, none of these mainstream media have thought that I have anything to say. And who interviews me? Well, uh, to my surprise, I was interviewed by Amy Goodman of uh, Democracy Now. I was interviewed by Abby uh, Martin. I was interviewed by uh, The Real News. These are all alternative. I, I'm still waiting. You know, last Saturday, uh, I was in London. I was the out, uh, outside examiner in a doctoral commission. And uh, while I was having the doctoral uh, defense, I get uh, an email. I was actually cons uh, cons consulting my emails. Uh, and uh, Sky News wants to see me. And I immediately answer, you know, busy now, write you later. So at the end of the doctoral um, uh, commission, uh, which went very well, by the way, I uh, got in contact with a journalist uh, from Sky News who was quite interested. Huh? And uh, we made an appointment. Uh, he was going to send the uh, team crew to the hotel to interview me. So even half an hour before the agreed time, everything was fine. The time came. Nobody shows up. Time goes by. Nobody shows up. I finally, you know, send him an email, and then I get an, inter uh, an email that, unfortunately, they were not going to do the interview. So, I mean, someone higher up said, desires, no way. We're not going to interview that individual because we don't want to hear his song. I am supposed to, and I felt it, huh? When I got the invitation to go to Venezuela, imagine how surrealistic this is. I got letters, I got emails from non-governmental organizations, I will not tell you which, you'd be surprised, telling me not to go. I was not supposed to go to Venezuela because I was not the pertinent rapporteur. I was not supposed to go to Venezuela because out of solidarity with the dozen others who had requested and not received an invitation, I should let them go first. So either you want UN presence in Venezuela, yes or no. Doesn't it occur to you that I'm opening the door? Doesn't it occur to you that 
through my first visit, it is easier for the government to welcome other rapporteurs. And indeed, they have invited two others. But one of the other uh, two who are who has been invited uh, told me, look, Alfred, the way you were treated by the press, I don't need that. I mean, if they don't want to listen to what I, in good conscience, have written in my report, if they think that I am just going to sing their song, they're wrong. So until there's a change in atmosphere, I'm not going. I can understand that. By the way, my main message, because now I've spoken rather long on it, my main message is the Venezuelan people must be helped. That is our priority and our responsibility. The Venezuelan people need humanitarian aid, but you're not going to allow that the tormentor that the country that has been trying to strangulate Venezuela, that that country now mutates and morphs into the savior and brings in a cornucopia of uh, food and medicine. It is so Machiavellian. It is so cynical. It is so obscene what is going on. To hear Pompeo or Bolton saying, that they're offering uh, uh, humanitarian aid when it is the United States that has caused the problem. And it's quite clear why. I mean, 2003, we devastated Iraq because we wanted Iraq oil. In 2011, we devastated Libya. Now the other major oil producing country, it's its turn. The U.S. and Bolton has been other rather uh, candid about it, you know, about uh uh, the possibilities for U.S. business uh, in Venezuela after their puppet, Juan uh, Guaido, after their puppet privatizes the industry and opens the doors to the United States looting of the um, uh, national resources uh, of Venezuela. The whole thing is unconscionable, but with the complicity of Canada, of the United Kingdom, of several countries in the European Union, and with the complicity of what I call the human rights industry. There are those out there who simply instrumentalize human rights, not in order to advance our common human dignity, not in order to serve our right to be ourselves and our right to self-determination, but to force us into a straitjacket, the only right that is important is the right to property and is uh, the, the right to make a profit. That is what the human rights structure is supposed to protect so that uh, transnationals and others can make tons of money on the backs of the Venezuelan people and forget uh, economic, social and cultural rights. These are rights of the second generation. We're not going to talk about them. We're not interested in them. What's important now, of course, is avoiding a civil war. I'm very concerned about a civil war. And I told the opposition, those whom I met from the opposition, I said, whether you like it or not, there are eight or nine million committed Chavistas. And they're not simply going to roll over. If you 
managed to get Maduro assassinated, if you manage to topple the government, you're going to have eight or nine million very angry people. And they're just simply not going to disappear. They are human beings. They have their human rights and they are going to demand their human rights from you. So if you don't give it to them, you are going to be toppled yourself. So do you want a, a civil war? And now the option is the Montevideo mechanism, which has been launched by Mexico and by Uruguay. And I hope uh, that something will come out of it. But for instance, Jose Luis Rodriguez Zapatero, the former prime minister of Spain, he hosted for two years, 2016, 17 and 18, he hosted uh, this negotiation between Julio Borges for the opposition and uh, the government of Venezuela, three Latin American states uh, advising Borges, three um, Latin American states advising uh, Maduro. And on the 6th of February, the document was ready. It was it had been agreed to orally. And then the phone rings and Julio Borges is told, no firme, don't sign. Why is he going to bother to sign uh, with these uh, sambos, with these mongrels, uh, uh, Maduro and company, when the United States can put them on the driver's seat? And that's the idea. But they seem to make uh, their predictions or their projections uh, without considering that there are eight or nine million committed Chavistas as, as if they didn't exist and say, mm -hmm. we're just going to take power by force and we're going to crush them as we crushed them in 1989 during the so-called uh, Caracazo when you had uh, the people of uh, Caracas demonstrating against uh, the privatization and against the austerity, austerity measures of the then neoliberal government, the then military was thrown against the people and 3,000 people were killed. Nobody cared, by the way. Huh? We don't have anything similar to that uh, on the Maduro. Maduro has been actually uh, quite uh, observant of the right to demonstrate peacefully Article 21 of the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and where there has been police brutality. And of course, there has been police brutality. There have been any number of investigations, any number of prosecutions and any number of convictions already. So the other argument that is used against them is corruption. Now, I people don't seem to have much of a memory. People don't seem to know history because corruption has been endemic to Venezuela uh, for 200 years. But in particular, in the last 100 years where, where there was a lot of money, uh, the last 100 years since oil was discovered in Venezuela. And uh, the one reason why Chavez got elected 2000 and uh, I'm sorry, got elected in 1998 uh, in a landslide, it was as a protest against the incredible level of corruption 
of the prior governments. I mean, uh, Carlos Andres Perez, for instance, was had to resign, uh, and then he was prosecuted and convicted of embezzlement. Uh, so this kind of uh, accusation of uh, corruption, I've looked into it. I find that the uh, fiscal in Venezuela uh, has a very robust anti-corruption uh, program and has been going after investigating and prosecuting a considerable number of Venezuelans in all uh, levels. And uh, that is nowhere to be read uh, in the mainstream media. They just, without any proof whatever, without any effort to somehow substantiate what they're saying, they say uh, Maduro is corrupt. And, uh, and that, of course, sticks. You know the old saying, calumniare audacter semper aliquid herat. Just be audacious uh, defaming people uh, because always something is going to stick. And that, of course, sticks. I mean, the narrative, the propaganda against uh, the current Venezuelan government has been successful. I mean, can, there's can you a tell tremendous us? number of people. We're running a bit late on time, but can you tell us um, you you fear for a civil war on one hand, and on the other hand, you know we're hoping these peace talks uh, will will solve the problem. What if um, we do see some kind of civil war? Do you think the U.S. would intervene somehow oh, definitely, mi definitely. militarily? The United and States is just looking for a pretext to march in. That is more than evident, uh, but I don't think uh, they're going to have an uneasy as they had it in um, Panama. I know in Panama they came in, and that was under George Bush Senior. Uh, they bombed uh, Panama City and they um, killed something like six thousand uh, civilians. No one, by the way, was ever uh, held responsible for the collateral damage of removing Manuel Noriega uh, from power. Um, uh, in Venezuela, it's going to be a lot more difficult. In Venezuela, you have uh, a military that uh, believes in Maduro. You have a military that is committed uh, to the uh, social economic model. Uh, of Chavismo, and then you have a tremendous number of citizens uh, who uh, believe in Chavismo and who will fight for it. So it's not going to be easy for the United States. You might end up uh, in a scenario of um, guerrilla warfare. And uh, the United States uh, did not succeed in imposing its system on Vietnam. The United States has not been terribly successful in its force-feeding practices uh, of democracy throughout the world. But basically, the United States doesn't care whether the country is devastated, as long as there's still money to be had. And regarding the, the U.S. You can devastate Iraq. Well, the, the, the U.S. You so the U.S. Iraq and Libya. And, well, and the, it, when I say the U.S., I mean both parties whether it be the Democrats or the Republicans, is not just Trump. It right. is obscene 
to see Nancy Pelosi approving uh, the actions uh, of, of Trump with regard to Venezuela. It is obscene to see her approve the recognition of a pretender. I mean, for heaven's sake, read Article 233 of the Venezuelan Constitution. It does not give the National Assembly the power that it has usurped. If Maduro dies or uh, becomes incapacitated, it's the vice president who takes over and it's not a matter for the uh, National Assembly, which, by the way, the National Assembly uh, is in what is termed in Spanish in desacato, meaning it's in contempt of court. And in any country with separation of powers, usually the last word belongs to the Supreme Court. Now, the Supreme Court told the National Assembly that it was overstepping its functions. It was overstepping its mandate. It was acting ultra vires in its attempt, as it did happen in, uh, in Brazil, to have a parliamentary coup d'etat. I mean, since day one, this National Assembly announced that their purpose was to get rid of Maduro. It was the so-called La Salida, the exit. That was the program. And they took any number of measures that were unconstitutional. It's the Supreme Court that will determine that. It's not you or me or a professor at Harvard or a professor at Georgetown that will tell you uh, that uh, uh, Guaido is legitimate. That is not for us to determine. That is for the constitutional authorities of Venezuela to determine, and they have determined that the National Assembly is acting ultra vires and that Guaido has zero legitimacy. But you if you have the United States and then dragging along with Trump, Justin Trudeau and Theresa May and uh, Heiko Maas, I mean, it is a revolt against international law. We have here a revolution against the international order. And I think that it's super dangerous because it is creating a precedent, meaning uh, if the United States gets away with this, then in the future, the United States can say, well, I want a different president in Uruguay, or I want a different president in Mexico, or I want a different president in uh, South Africa. I just don't like this guy. So I'm going to call him corrupt. I'm going to call him illegitimate. I will recognize somebody else. Uh, and then I'll drag on, you know, the Canadians and uh, the uh, Europeans to approve what I have. Uh, no, I'm the leader of the free world, so-called free world. I mean, the thing is too realistic and it's very dangerous. How do you stand? How does the world stand up to Washington? I mean, if they can get away with it's this. It's not standing up to Washington. It is not. I mean, uh, the. The world could very easily stand up to Washington, for instance, by refusing to buy Boeing, by refusing to buy um, American uh, high technology. They can buy the same high technology in India. They can buy the same high technology in, in China. They don't have to buy it from the United States. If uh, Europe were to uh, really decide we are not going to put up uh, with this disorder, with this revolution against international law, we are going to insist that the U United Nations Charter be respected. 
uh, and then we're going to make the, the U.S. feel it. We're going to make the U.S. feel it by not. Yes, I have it here, too. <laughs> uh, that uh, would pass the message. But the problem is that everybody is in it. You have the one percent. You have the deep state. You have a major economic interest at stake and the economy rules the world. So whatever you say by way of principles, by way of international law, uh, it's money that is going to determine the policy. Do you see Washington's power declining? Is it an empire yes. in decline? Yes, I do think so. I do think what so. But it, it's, it's declining also because of a sense uh, of disgust, a sense uh, of enough is enough uh, in many capitals in the world. They don't quite dare yet express it, uh, but uh, they express it, of course, on ancillary matters. This silly wall between Mexico and the United States is easy to uh, bang uh, or bash uh, Trump because of this uh, surrealistic idea. Uh, but when it comes to really important things uh, like uh, the destruction of Iraq in 2003 or the destruction of Libya in 2011, basically they're all complicit because they're all making money. And um, that is, of course, after 40 years of working in the field of human rights, uh, I have come to know uh, that human rights have been weaponized. Human rights no longer mean uh, the entitlement to human dignity and no longer means uh, that I have the right to be myself. You have the right to be yourself. We are being made into robots. We're being made into numbers. We're consumers, and that is our function. And uh, in the meantime, uh, the narrative is going to be Orwellian. Uh, everybody knows 1984, but people probably do not know as well uh, that Lewis Carroll in Alice in Wonderland and through the uh, looking glass already saw the problem when uh, Alice uh, meets Humpty Dumpty, and Humpty Dumpty is uh, very happy and tells her that, look, you know, I have all the power I need because I can make words mean anything I want. I, not more and not less. You know, today it means this and tomorrow means that. And Alice says, uh, but you can't do that. And Humpty Dumpty responds, of course I can if I have the power. And that throws me back uh, to the Peloponnesian War and to the Melian uh, uh, campaign. The Athenian general told very clearly to the Melians, uh, look guys, the powerful do what they want and the weak suffer as they must. So. Either, you know, obey us, or we're going to crush you. The uh, millions thought, this is unjust. This is unreasonable. Why should we just bend down? And the millions were genocide. The millions were crushed. Uh, this the leads world me to changed much since then. One of my final questions, which I, I am, I'm really curious about, you know, you mentioned Orwell 
who said in a time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And I think one of the solutions, you know, I believe if we had a critical mass of courageous people, brave people, we could have not a brave new world, you know, but a better, better world. But it seems like, you know, most people are too afraid. Uh, you know, you, you are like a voice in the wilderness. You know, where you're one of the few voices speaking the truth. Where's everyone else? Are they afraid uh, to be? Well, there, there are plenty of others. I mean, um, the um, open letter uh, by uh, Noam Chomsky uh, 70, was 70 signed by 70 odd academics. There have been several other open letters. And I remember because I visited Noam Chomsky back in 2013. I had given a lecture at Harvard, and after that, I jumped in a cab and went over to see uh, Noam at MIT. And I said, Noam, how can you stand it? For the last 50 years, you have been telling the truth. For the last 50 years, you have been analyzing the problems. You have been giving constructive proposals, and not, not nothing changes. Things actually get worse. And Noam looks at me and says, young man, and I was not very young then, the young man, we do what we can and what we must. And that's it. It's uh, a contribution uh, to the general debate. Certainly a lot of people admire Noam Chomsky and with good reason. And uh, there's very good people out there, certainly Amy Goodman of uh, Democracy Now!, certainly uh, Mark Weisbrot, uh, certainly, um, uh, the Real News Network, uh, they're doing very good job. Uh, on the other hand, it is difficult to go against the conglomerates and it is difficult uh, to go against uh, CNN and Fox and uh, Deutsche Welle, etc., etc. As I said, it is uh, proof of this uh, manipulation of public opinion uh, that. Uh, in none of those organs has my report even appeared. It does not exist. They cannot dispute my analysis of the situation in Venezuela. They have cannot show that I have made methodological mistakes. They cannot point their finger at something that is clearly wrong. So the best thing is simply the report doesn't exist desires doesn't exist. I don't get uh, an invitation to speak in uh, uh, in uh, CNN or BBC or Fox. And when I do get an invitation in Sky News, <laughs> it gets canceled, you know, like half an hour uh, before it's supposed to take place. So uh, we are dealing uh, with a um, systematic an institutionalized manipulation of public opinion. And those who think that we have uh, a free press, I would uh, suggest uh, that they read Orwell again. And those who think that America is interested in human rights or democracy uh, or bringing humanitarian aid to the Venezuelans, I suggest that they read uh, Stephen Kinzer's book, Overthrow, or William uh, Bloom's book, uh, Killing Hope. We've interviewed Kinzer a few times on the podcast, um, so we're 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 just about out of time. Um, given this the situation, you know, how much hope can we have with with the UN 
in the future being uh, being able to solve these problems and is there any final thought you'd like to like to leave us with uh, on venezuela or well, any antonio other issue guterres, antonio guterres has asked uh, for dialogue he has offered his good offices to mediate and uh, i think that well, maduro has taken it up huh? maduro, maduro answered that yes he wants that antonio guterres uh uh, take on the mediation, but I don't see that advancing. And um, I also know that in the month of December already, so that is six weeks ago, the Maduro government extended an official invitation to the new High Commissioner, Michel Bachelet, uh, to come personally to Venezuela and to speak with everybody, to speak with the opposition, to speak with the government, uh, to speak with the non-governmental organizations, etc. And uh, as far as I've been informed to this day, uh, the Venezuelan government has not received uh, an answer uh, from uh, the High Commissioner. And that worries me because it is the responsibility of the High Commissioner vis-a-vis -vis the people of Venezuela to do whatever she can to mediate, to do whatever she can uh, to help the dialogue go forward. But for a dialogue to go forward, you need good faith. And what happened on the 6th of February 2018 in the Dominican Republic when Julio Borges refused to sign an agreement that had been worked on for two years I mean, the level of bad faith has been abundantly proven. And uh, I don't know to what extent uh, the uh, opposition has any intention to enter into any kind of good, way, uh, good faith uh, negotiation. It seems like what they intend to is a coup d'etat, either by having Maduro assassinated, or by having a civil war necessary, but uh, they just want uh, power. They are not interested in democracy or in human rights. They want power and, of course, the enormous resources that lie in the ground in, um, in Venezuela. Well, Dr. Desaias, um, people can follow your commentary on Twitter. I believe your handle is at uh, Alfred Desaias. And you have a WordPress blog, um, desiasalfred.wordpress.com, is correct? Correct. Well, um, any, any last word? So, Last word? Another topic that concerns me, as you well know, is Catalonia. And uh -huh. today, the trial of uh, 12 uh, Catalonian politicians who, uh, pursuant to their electoral campaigns, they were democratically elected to the um, Catalan parliament. These 12 politicians uh, did what they had to do to organize uh, a referendum on the issue of self-determination. Self-determination, as you know, is used Kogan's. Self-determination is Article 1 of the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and Article 1 of the Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights 
self-determination is affirmed in the UN Charter, and it is one of those pillars of the United Nations organization. Notwithstanding, uh, Spain says that self-determination means only decolonization. And as I told some uh, Spanish professors and advisors of the then Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy, I'm afraid you guys stayed in the 1960s and never perceived the fact that uh, there is a progressive development of international law. You never felt that uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union into 15 separate sovereign entities or the dissolution of uh, Yugoslavia into seven separate entities or uh, the friendly divorce of the Czech Republic from the uh, Slovak Republic actually created precedence. And one thing that uh, I reminded them, please read paragraph 80 of the advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice on Kosovo. The Serbs asked the question, which principle, which norm has priority, territorial integrity or self-determination? And the court was very candid. The court said every time that uh, in a United Nations document resolution in the UN Charter itself, Article 2, Paragraph 4, where territorial integrity is invoked is to regulate the relations between states, meaning state A cannot invade state B, state A cannot annex the territory of state B. Never is it used in the internal context, and it cannot be, because self-determination is one of the pillars of the United Nations. Self-determination is a right of use cogens, and it says very clearly, every people has the right of self-determination. And Article 1, Paragraph 3 says, every state party has the obligation to promote the realization of the right of self-determination by all peoples. So uh, when the advisors of Rajoy say that uh, it does not apply in Spain, I say, there again, you're wrong. Read your own constitution. Article 10, paragraph 2, and Article 96 are very clear that international law takes priority over national law and that national law must be interpreted in the light of international law, in particular in the light uh, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the other human rights uh, instruments of which uh, Spain is a state party. But again, here it's might makes right, like in Venezuela. Uh, Madrid does not want uh, to negotiate. Madrid doesn't show any good faith at all at uh, European states. It's not just shocking that you have political prisoners uh, in Spain, meaning within the European Union. Not just shocking that uh, persons whose only crime, in quotation marks, uh, is conducting a self-determination referendum. 
speaking in favor in favor of uh, self determination. They have been kept in preventive detention under infrahuman conditions for sixteen months. Now we're not talking about a banana republic. We're not talking about an underdeveloped country. We're talking about a country member of the European Union, bound by the Treaty of Lisbon, bound by Article 2 of the Treaty of Lisbon that obliges every country in the European Union to respect and promote democracy, the rule of law, and human rights. So here you have massive violations of human rights by the central government in Madrid, and they're moving ahead with a kangaroo trial based on the supposed crimes of rebellion and sedition. Now imagine how ridiculous it would have been if the United Kingdom had arrested and detained for a year and a half the leaders of the independence movement in Scotland and if uh, Canada had arrested and kept in indefinite detention the leaders uh, of the Quebec movement. I mean, it's clear that they all have the right of freedom of expression and freedom of peaceful assembly, which, by the way, the Catalans have observed rigorously. It's amazing what uh, perseverance and what patience uh, the Catalans uh, have shown. And uh, for being a democratically elected parliamentarian who was elected on a platform to conduct a referendum, to have these people criminalized and to have Brussels say nothing about it. I mean, Brussels has been opening investigations and uh, the Article 7 uh, proceeding uh, under the Treaty of Lisbon against Hungary and against Poland. Well, the situation in Spain is many times worse than that what, in Hungary what, or Poland. What, what outcome um, do you foresee there? Uh, well, um, Prime Minister Sanchez uh, is likely to lose his job if he shows any leniency toward uh, the uh, Catalans. But the Catalans are not giving up. It's similar to the situation in Venezuela. Whether Madrid likes it or not, there are at least three million Catalans who are committed to self-determination, which does not necessarily mean Secession does not necessarily mean uh, full independence, uh, but at least there is an obligation on the part of the government to uh, negotiate. I had the opportunity before the referendum uh, to speak with the advisors of uh, Mariano Rajoy, and I had the opportunity of speaking with uh, 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 and uh, I gave them my advice, which of course was not taken, uh, but I also offered uh, 
uh, my mediation if any, anybody wants it. Uh, Switzerland offered mediation and uh, Rajoy rejected it. So uh, here we have a situation of institutionalized intransigence. I mean, this is just brute force. This is just power. The uh, uh, Spanish government wants to keep Catalonia as the milk cow, and they're not about to release Catalonia from the Union. And uh, I find it uh, so cynical and uh, so corrosive uh, of the rule of law when uh, they're trying to, say, defend uh, democracy uh, in Spain and the rule of law in Spain when it is Madrid that is destroying both. And uh, the complicity of Brussels, that is something that um, uh, leaves me uh, aghast. I mean, it, it's, uh, uh, it is the obligation uh, of the European Commission to defend the right of the Catalans who happen to be European citizens. It's not like they're interfering in the affairs of some country in Africa or in Asia. We're talking about Europe. We're talking about European citizens and European citizens who are both democratic and peaceful. I mean, we have not had, no, at no time, the kind of violence that the Venezuelan opposition has used against uh, the Maduro government. If you look at the videos and the photographs of uh, the so-called Guarimbas in Venezuela in uh, 2014, but also in 2017, especially the period uh, March to July uh, 2017, I mean, these people were throwing Molotov cocktails. I mean, these people were burning people alive. I mean, this is not a peaceful crowd. And notwithstanding, uh, they call themselves peaceful demonstrators, and which is more shocking, the report of the High Commissioner for Human Rights calls them peaceful demonstrators. That is the kind of manipulation, the kind of fake news. When it comes from Washington, uh, I'm used to it. But if it comes from the office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, uh, we have a problem here of corruption inside, a, a problem uh, of abandonment of fundamental principles and of a fundamental methodology. I mean, we can disagree about uh, many facts and their interpretation, but at least you must take all of these facts and all the interpretations into account. And uh, as in Venezuela, that has not happened, as in now in uh, Spain with uh, Catalonia, uh, the uh, mainstream media is deliberately misinforming the public. Uh, I was particularly shocked when I was still uh, independent expert for the promotion of a democratic and equitable international order. And uh, I sent several uh, 
communications, meaning complaints, uh, to the government of Spain. And I issued several um, press releases and media statements. I was savaged in the Spanish press. I was savaged uh, in El Mundo and in uh, La Razón. And in, uh, I mean, I was accused of being all sorts of things. I won't repeat the ludicrous things that I was accused of. Uh, but it's something that uh, concerns me because a rapporteur is first and foremost supposed to be independent. First and foremost, he should have uh, the opportunity to listen to everybody and then to give his honest opinion. But it was very clear to me they don't want my honest opinion on Catalonia or on Venezuela. They want me to toe the line. I am supposed uh, to agree with the narrative. I'm supposed to add weight to the uh, narrative that they are pushing. And uh, notwithstanding how well my reports have been and uh, the fact that I have substantiated every comma in my reports, they don't want to hear it. And with regard uh, to Spain, I think what is indispensable is that this matter go not only to the uh, European Court of Human Rights, but appropriate cases should be sent to the Human Rights Committee. Appropriate cases should be sent to the UN Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, on the independence of the judiciary, on uh, the working group on uh, arbitrary detention, and what some people forget, since Spain is bound by the Treaty of Lisbon, and all countries in the European Union are bound by the decisions of the European Court of Human Rights in um, sorry, European Court of Justice in uh, Luxembourg. Uh, this is a matter that should be before the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg, and uh, Spain should be solidly condemned for violating uh, EU, uh, European law, not just violating. Uh, Spanish law and its own constitution, but violating European law. And the principle, or rather the right, of self-determination is a right that has been recognized repeatedly by the European Union. And last year, on the 27th of February, they issued uh, a decision concerning the commercial agreement between the European Union and Morocco, in which they said... Uh, because self-determination uh, is international law and it's part of European law and it is recognized by uh, European law, this commercial treaty cannot and will not apply in Western Sahara because Western Sahara does not belong to Morocco and Western Sahara should be administered for the benefit of the Sahrawis and not for the benefit uh, of Morocco, and therefore the commercial treaty, whatever benefits flow from it, must not affect the right of self-determination of the Sahrawis. Here again, we have a, a precedent that also applies uh, to Spain, 
But here we have the anormality that uh, it is being systematically ignored. And uh, uh, you speak like this, uh, the same as I have not been interviewed by CNN, Fox, uh, BBC on the Venezuelan issue. I have never been interviewed in Spain by El Mundo, by El País, by the ABC. I mean, total uh, non-existence uh, of my arguments. And whenever uh, I have been mentioned in these organs, they have completely distorted what I say. And they have, uh, well, manipulated uh, what I, in a very systematic and methodological way, have put down in paper. The only interviews I have given on the issue of Catalonia have been for Catalonian newspapers and interestingly enough also for French, Belgian and, um, and Dutch uh, newspapers. Well, Dr. Dr. Zayas, um, we've run out of time. Um, as a U.S. citizen, I, I'm concerned with what Washington uh, is doing in Venezuela. And as an EU citizen as well, I'm concerned with, as you say, Brussels' uh, uh, behavior and, and actions. Uh, hopefully things uh, work out, uh, you know, as you say, with international law, uh, that we move forward there. Uh, I do want to say that, you know, you were one of the professors who left a mark on me, not only because of your level of expertise, uh, professionalism, and dedication to, you know, as people can hear, you know, ethics and, and the best uh, outcomes. You're also a walking encyclopedia and you speak something like half a dozen languages or, or more, but as well as your courage to speak the truth uh, at a time when, you know, few, I think, are willing willing to do so. Um, so, Dr. Zayas, you know, I would like to say people can check out your Twitter, your website, uh, as well as keep doing what you're doing because, you know, the people of the world who desire peace and the rule of law yeah, very much uh, appreciated. Last word, the motto of the Peace of Westphalia, Pax Optima Rerum. Peace is the highest good, and that is the core of the United Nations Charter, and that's what should join all of us in trying to work for a world that is more just, and more peaceful than today.